Hi, and welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As you can tell from the title, today's episode will cover a procedure known as the Nissen Fundoplication. But the surgeon behind this operation, Dr. Rudolf Nissen, is the real subject, as his life was fascinating and the example he set is worth examining. So let's get into it in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Rudolf Nissen was born on September 5th, 1896 in a town called Nice, which at the time was in the region known as Silesia in the German Empire. It is now known as Nysa and is part of Poland. His father Franz was a well-known general surgeon, and he owned a large building which served both as a hospital and the family home. Now, This background not surprisingly influenced Rudolf to study medicine, which he began in the nearby city of Breslau. This was interrupted by the First World War as Rudolf was conscripted into active military service in 1916. Now, there was a critical need for physicians in the German army, and medical students that had completed three semesters of classroom lectures and passed an exam were permitted to enter service as troop physicians. This is how Rudolf found himself as the highest medical authority in an artillery unit, containing several hundred men despite having no clinical experience. He served both on the Western Front and in Hungary and Romania on the Eastern Front. During his time in the army, Rudolf was shot in the chest and never fully recovered. We'll come back to that. Upon discharge, Nissen completed his medical degree in Breslau, then became a research assistant in Freiburg, Germany, in the lab of the famous pathologist Ludwig Aschoff. Now, there's a funny story about why he thought he got the job. During the war, Professor Aschoff was investigating the effects of phosgene gas exposure, which is a chemical weapon, on Nissen's unit. And during the visit, Nissen made arrangements for Aschoff to take a thrilling flight in a two-seat fighter plane. Now, unfortunately, Aschoff would later be a supporter of the Nazis, causing a rift between the two that never closed. Nissen said, quote, While he immediately recognized weaknesses and untidiness in scientific work, he was less critical in the political area, influenced by slogans and theatrics, end quote. Now, after working with Ashoff, Nissen took an interim position as volunteer assistant in the Munich Surgical Clinic, directed by Ferdinand Sauerbrucht in 1921. Nissen himself said his main reason for taking the position was to take advantage of the skiing and climbing in the nearby Bavarian Alps. Now, Sauerbrucht, one of the most important surgeons in Europe at the time, played a central role in the development of the emerging specialty of thoracic surgery, or chest surgery, which arose from the need for more effective treatments for tuberculosis. Nissen learned the surgical treatments of a number of lung diseases from him, and Sauerbrock became his mentor. Nissen quickly rose through the ranks to become second in command, and followed him when Sauerbrock was called to Berlin in 1927 to direct the Charity Surgical Clinic. Now, that clinic actually has some interesting history. It was founded in 1709 by King Frederick I of Prussia outside the city walls of Berlin, in anticipation of an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Now, the plague spared the city, and it was then used as a charity hospital for the poor. It became affiliated with a medical school in 1713 and the University of Berlin in 1828. Many famous German surgeons worked there, including Theodore Billroth. See Podcast 39. Now, while working at the clinic, Nissen gained international fame for performing a pneumonectomy, which is the removal of an entire lung, an operation which was thought to be impossible as previous attempts had caused the patients to go into cardiac arrest. So here's the story. In 1931, an 11-year-old girl presented to the clinic in extremis after being hit by a car. She had air in her chest, both collapsing her lung, called a tension pneumothorax, and in the mid part of her chest, called a pneumomediastinum. This was because one of the main tubes of the lungs, called a main stem bronchus, had a tear or laceration. Once the collapsed lung was dealt with, she went on to develop a life-threatening infection of her lung. In a desperate attempt to save her life, Nissen attempted to remove the lung, which sent the patient into cardiac arrest. The team stopped, 
The patient was stabilized, and a second attempt was made two weeks later, and this time it was successful. Now, also while at the clinic, Nissen started a practice that every modern surgeon should recognize, but was quite novel at the time. As a surgeon that had trained under a pathologist, Nissen made looking at the tissue under a microscope during an ongoing surgical procedure a routine practice. He did this by developing techniques for rapidly freezing the tissue specimens removed by the surgeon and then staining thin sections of the frozen tissue for immediate microscopic analysis. Although it is now typically the pathologist rather than the surgeon that looks at the tissue, this frozen section technique is a critical part of many operations today and is used to direct treatment decisions in the OR. Now as you can imagine, since this story takes place in 1930s Germany, the Nazis were bound to play a role. In the March of 1933, Nissen was instructed by the National Socialist Government, aka the Nazi Party, to dismiss all of his Jewish assistants. Despite being half-Jewish himself, Nissen was exempt from this order as he was a war vet. And on April 1st of 1933, the Nazi Party ordered a boycott of all Jewish businesses and professionals. The next day, Nissen wrote the following to Sauerbruck, quote, Many vile events are happening now, but nothing is worse than the foul insults on my personal honor. I feel personally hurt by a treacherous abuse with which not only the masses, but also professional people and colleagues of mine fully agree, end quote. Nissen then decided to leave Germany. His mentor and friend Sauerbruck, although never joining the Nazi party, stayed and served under the Nazi regime, prospering financially and professionally. He became Surgeon General of the Armed Forces, visited the fronts, and was awarded the National Prize of Science by the Nazis. Sauerbruck had been his mentor for 12 years, and throughout his life Nissen continued to admire him and remain loyal as long as the two lived. The National Socialist Party continued to dismiss and denationalize thousands of academics due to political dissidents, and other countries took advantage. One of these was Turkey, who used the exodus of German scientists to bolster their own universities. In 1933, Nissen became head of the surgery department at Istanbul University. He performed surgery throughout the country and had military planes at his disposal, which he used to travel the country and even to consult on patients in Greece, the Soviet Union, and Egypt. It was while working in Turkey that the seed of his eponymous procedure was planted. In 1936, Nissen had a 28-year-old patient with an ulcer in his esophagus. He removed a portion of the esophagus and rejoined the remaining esophagus to the stomach. The problem was that this would lead to the backflow of stomach contents into the esophagus, a very common problem known as gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD for short. To avoid this backflow, he wrapped, or to use the medical term, plicated, folds of the upper stomach around the lower esophagus. While following the patient, he found that his problems with heartburn improved after the surgery. He would come back to this idea many years later. A quick note, the word plicated comes from the Latin plicatus, meaning folded. Anyways, Nissen left Turkey in 1939 for the U.S. Whether this was because he didn't feel safe being so close to Nazi Germany on the eve of war, frustration by the language barrier, or resentment over the lack of support in developing an academic program in Istanbul is hard to know. He became a surgery fellow in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital for two years. During that time, he experienced a sudden tremor and high fever while operating, which turned out to be due to a lung abscess, the result of a retained bullet from the First World War. He was treated and recovered. By 1941, Nissen had passed the exams necessary for getting medical license in New York and started a private practice in Manhattan. He then took the position as chief of surgery at the Jewish Hospital in Brooklyn and later added running the surgical services of the nearby Maimonides Hospital. After the war, he received a number of offers to return to Germany, including the surgical chair at the University of Hamburg in 1946, which he declined, saying that he could not see himself teaching surgery to a medical community 
contaminated by ex-Nazis. While at the Jewish hospital, Nissen had an interesting encounter. In December of 1948, Albert Einstein was admitted for the removal of intestinal cysts, but was found to also have what is known as an abdominal aortic aneurysm, sometimes called a triple A for short. This is basically like a ballooning of a part of the big artery that runs from the heart through the chest and into the abdomen. The danger is that this can rupture, causing massive bleeding, is often fatal. Now, the problem was that there was no definitive surgery for a AAA in 1948, so Nissen wrapped it in cellophane to induce fibrosis in the vessel and limit expansion, a procedure that had been around since 1943. So that's pretty strange, so let's dig a little deeper. The cellophane film was invented by Swiss textile engineer Jacques E. Brandenburger in 1908 and is made of a polymer of cellulose. It was first used in humans in 1943 by doctors Paul Harrison and Jacob Chandy to treat aneurysms of subclavian arteries, which again is like a ballooning of a vessel. Interestingly, it turned out that pure polyethylene cellophane was non-reactive, but standard impure material from the primary manufacturer DuPont was highly reactive, and it's this reaction that caused the fibrosis or scarring around the vessel that limited its expansion. By the early 1950s, surgical repair with artificial grafts had taken over, mostly by the 1954 design of the Dacron graft by Dr. Michael DeBakey and Dr. Denton Cooley, who we will definitely cover later. Today, we often use grafts inserted by stents, which enter the abdominal aorta by accessing the artery in the leg to avoid opening up the abdomen surgically. Dr. Juan Perotti introduced the first successful endovascular graft in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1990. Now, cellophane may no longer be used, but the next time you're wrapping up that sandwich in cellophane, or whatever you call it, in my neck of the woods it's called saran wrap, think about aneurysms and Einstein. Another interesting fact. The famous picture of Einstein sticking his tongue out was taken upon his discharge from hospital. He sent Nissen a signed copy of the photo, writing, quote, To Nissen my tummy, the world my tongue, end quote. Einstein lived for nearly seven more years, dying in a hospital in Princeton, New Jersey. The autopsy showed the cause of death was leaking aneurysm. Nissen's time in the U.S. ended in 1952, when he moved to Switzerland to become the department head at the University of Basel. He would stay there until his retirement in 1967. So why did he leave the U.S.? A number of reasons have been given in the sources I read, including the opportunity to teach in his native language, German, without returning to Germany, to pursue more scholarly and scientific works, something he was too busy for in the United States, to help reform medical education in Europe, and to convince the establishment of the necessity for surgical subspecialization. So at this point, you're probably thinking, well, we've covered his early life, his experiences in World War I, Nazi Germany, his move to Turkey and then the U.S., and his famous patient, Albert Einstein. Well, wasn't this podcast supposed to be about the Nissen Fund obligation? Well, let's finally get to it. While working in Switzerland, Nissen performed a number of types of surgeries for people with reflux disease, or GERD, but many patients relapsed. It was then that he recalled his young patient in Turkey with the esophageal ulcer and decided to try that same operation. His first patient was a 49-year-old woman with a three-year history of reflux. Now, this was a success, and so he operated on another patient and published the results of the two cases in 1956. He called this a gastroplication, but it's now called a fundoplication. Now, we talked about the word plicate, which refers to folding or putting together in pleats, Gastro refers to stomach, and fundo refers to the fundus, which is the upper part of the stomach, so it's just a bit more specific of a name. So let's go over the surgery in basic terms. The operation goes through the abdomen, meaning transabdominal, and the upper part of the stomach, or the fundus, is wrapped around the lower esophagus and sewn or sutured in place. 
The normal contractions of the stomach would then close the esophagus, thereby keeping stomach contents from going back up the esophagus. By the 1970s, Nissen's operation had become adopted worldwide and was the most popular anti-reflux procedure. An important modification was described by one of Nissen's favorite students, Dr. Mario Rossetti. In the original procedure, both the front and back part, the anterior and posterior of the stomach, were wrapped around the esophagus. Rossetti changed this to just the front or anterior part of the stomach, which reduced the problem of dysphagia, or difficulty swallowing, which was a not uncommon complication. The procedure continued to be modified, and today the laparoscopic, or minimally invasive or keyhole surgery version, of the Nissen fund application is considered the standard surgical approach for reflux disease. Dr. Rudolf Nissen died on January 22, 1981, at the age of 84 in Rien, Switzerland. Now, throughout his life, he published extensively, taught, made contributions to hiatal hernia and reflux surgery and pulmonary surgery, advocated for patient-centered medical education, and promoted surgical subspecialization. Now, later in his life, he became somewhat philosophical, especially about surgical practice, and wrote a number of insightful papers on the subject. Here's an example. Quote, The stereotype of a surgeon is false. He should not be a person who is hardened to his mistakes and who shuts out the tormenting questions of why. He must, however, possess enough psychological resistance to get away from lingering guilt in the sense of long-standing depression, end quote. Other than being gender-specific, this quote seems quite topical today. Now, one source I read summarized his contributions to surgery and medicine very well, so let's close on that. Quote, his example is to stay true to the basic principles that have advanced medicine for centuries, educating young physicians, preserving academic freedom, respecting human dignity, and guiding medical practice by scientific evidence, end quote. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to take a small hiatus for summer holidays, so the next episode will be on August 25th. That episode will take us back to the series on surgical families, where we'll cover the famous Mayo Brothers. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.